Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren. Welcome to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking to filmmaker, author, and speaker Don Johnson, the founder of Don Johnson Media and Don Johnson Ministries, and Runaway Planet Pictures, under which he has produced several feature-length documentaries. Just to give you a bit of his background, he's written two books on theology, culture, and politics. He has a BA in Theology, Missions, and Intercultural Studies from San Jose Christian College, an MA in Christian Apologetics from Biola University, and an MA in Theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. He has four children, and they live in Southern California. But today we're going to be talking to Don about his most recent film. It's called Disconnected, the real story behind the transgender explosion. And I really think that this this is a very timely documentary, similar to the way Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, was a really, really important and timely book. We interviewed her on this program. You can go back and, and take a look at that if you'd like to. The tagline for this documentary is from your body, from your family, from reality. And it's a really profoundly moving documentary in a way that I didn't expect it to be. Now, I expected it to be good and I expected it to be to be powerful in some ways. But I've seen a lot of documentaries and a lot of various films on this issue because it's it's part of my job to stay abreast of these issues. I've even seen documentaries produced by the other side, including the documentary Transhood, which was actually in favor of gender ideology, but as I pointed out in my review in First Things, I think actually made the opposite case by the time they got to the end of the film. But Don Johnson's film is a really, really powerful film I'd like to recommend to all of you. And so before, without getting into all the details, I'm going to let our conversation speak for itself. Here's my conversation with Don Johnson, the filmmaker behind Disconnected, the real story behind the transgender explosion. All right, just to start off, maybe both introduce yourself to our listeners and then explain why you ended up making an entire documentary on the issue of transgenderism. Sure. So my name is Don Johnson. I am a filmmaker, author, speaker based in Southern California. Primarily, though, am a husband and father of four kids. I think that's been my main motivating issue for a lot of things the last decade or so. I have three daughters. They range from now 12 to 21. And it's a crappy time to be a teenage girl. <laughs> it's a tough culture to yeah. be a teenage girl. Oh, yeah. And so years ago, just even in our little conservative enclave, really, here in Orange County, that kids, even homeschooled kids that didn't have phones were running into sexting, you know, and things like this, like, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I went on a journey examining the history of the sexual revolution. And so this is my second doc on the topic, really. The first one, Unprotected, went into sort of more, well, a little bit more historical than this one does. But then the transgender thing, which exploded, you know, as you know, 2015, 2013 to 2015. And now the last, you know, eight years, seven, eight years has been insane, especially among teenage girls. I thought, well, we got to get to the bottom of this. And when I started examining it, I'm like, well, this is actually, a, for one, it's a good story. You can't make a movie if it's not a good story. So <laughs> that's what got me making the movie about it but it's also we need to be aware of this like this is evil it's (laughs) it's insane and parents everybody we got to be aware of this so that's that's what got me moving in this direction 
So let's talk about this documentary because there's been another recent documentary that came out. Well, there's been a couple of documentaries. I reviewed one documentary for First Things called Transhood, which was produced by essentially pro-trans filmmakers. And even they noted that a kid detransitioned and fortunately were just sort of socially presenting as the opposite gender by the end of shooting the documentary. And I noted that they totally missed the conclusions they should have drawn from their own experience observing what these kids were going through with this new social phenomenon. And then you've got Matt Walsh's documentary, which was much more of sort of an academic exercise in which he's questioning academics and letting their arguments hang themselves by highlighting the fact that they can't answer the question, what is a woman? The way your documentary starts off packs a real emotional punch because you show this kid basically announcing that they desperately need to have a surgery, a double mastectomy, and then post-surgery talking about how euphoric she feels, how wonderful she feels, that this is the answer, and you kind of feel sick watching it because you're thinking, oh man, how many kids were watching this video and thinking, I want to be that happy too, I want to get these same surgeries. And then you shift to the same girl detransitioning and talking about what she went through. And then, of course, her interview. She's interviewed throughout the film. How did you get these detransitioners to talk to you? And what was it like having those conversations? Well, I mean, it was emotional for me, too. I think that's the first thing you noticed is that it grabs you by the throat and the heart, isn't it? And then... Mm -hmm. And then carries you through. And then thankfully, there's a nice surprise ending at the end. But I started sort of on the academic side, too, actually. I was interested in guys like Carl Truman and my friend Abigail Favalli had written books on it. And I started talking to them. But I knew I wanted the stories underneath. I mean, uh, for one thing, I wanted to meet those people. So they, like Abigail, for example, introduced me to Daisy, who's sort of the main story. She's the girl you talked about. And talking to her, it was interesting, actually, because Daisy even, so she's out in Chicago, and we talked to her several times. We flew out there a couple of times. And you see even during the filmmaking, so the, the last scene in the movie was literally shot just weeks, like two weeks before we released the scene. <laughs> I mean, we were the whole, the story was progressing as we're cutting it and putting it all together. And I'm like, you know, the composer, I'm telling him, hold off, hold off. We've got an ending. We've got an ending. We've got to wait for it. You're kind of on an emotional roller coaster with them too, as you're talking with Daisy, right? Like she's learning and growing and coming out of it. And these are just, you know, she's the early 20s. You know, she was 15. She looks like she's about 12. She's about 15 in the beginning, but she looks so young. It kind of pulls you along, especially as a dad, like in their pain and their suffering and their searching. I mean, they're just, like I said, I got teenage girls. It's tough to be a teenage girl. They don't know about the world. And yet here she is cutting her boobs off, you know, as a teenager. It's just, it's heartbreaking, but hopefully also a little bit hopeful in the, <laughs> well, it is hopeful in the end. Yeah, so let's dig into that a little bit more. I actually talked to a detransitioner, Chloe Cole, just recently, and I found the same thing sort of heartbreaking. You've got these, you know, pretty girls who are just teenagers, and they're being not only enabled, but basically persuaded to make this permanent and irreversible decision before they're old enough to smoke, drink, drive, or vote. I had Abigail Schreier on the show when her book, Irreversible Damage, first came out, and the long-term effects of what's being done to kids is just really kind of staggering. It's very interesting to bring up Carl Truman. I just had a review of his book, Strange New World, come out in the European Conservative, and he's having something of a moment right now. He was 
interviewed for the What is a Woman documentary as well, and I find his work incredibly helpful. But when you were in the process of shooting this documentary and attempting to, so we got the tip of the iceberg, which is what you just described happening to young girls like Daisy every week. When you did a bit of a dive underneath the surface, what did you find? For one thing, it's incredibly dark. That was one of the things that I surprised me a little bit. I mean, I knew it was going to be dark. It's darker and more powerful than I thought. And what I found, and this is what I didn't really realize as I started making the film, is that the institutions in our country and the forces behind are so strong. And it's almost like these girls get sucked into this vortex that is almost inescapable for a kid. Like the counseling industries, the medical industries, the educational industries. I sadly went into the public schools here a little bit (laughs) as part of a charter school teaching thing in the last couple of years. And it's just absolutely, you can't even, I mean, I guess you can, Jonathan, you know, but it's people don't realize just how strong these forces are that are funneling these kids into this money-making anti-science cultish movement. I mean, it's like, in fact, I just, I was literally reading this 10 minutes ago before we started talking. You can have a 12, 13 year old who has a history of being sexually abused in a broken home and have all sorts of emotional problems. She can show up at a counselor who is supposedly trained in trauma, right? And that girl can talk to that counselor for the next five to 10 years. And that counselor will now today never ask her about that trauma, especially, especially if the topic of trans even vaguely pops up, that will be the only thing they talk about. And if you think I'm overstating this, I literally, that was five, 10 minutes ago. I read the same again and again, you hear this, like, why are these counselors so not, you know, so anti-counseling anymore? Why are the teachers So completely sucked in. And that's one of the things that I found is like, this is like, I do mention a couple that there's some big money players that are pushing this, right? Like there's some that I don't even mention the film, like the Pritzkers are pushing this and, and some big money, powerful players. But beyond that, to me, I was struck Jonathan by just sort of the spiritual dark forces behind it, the anti-human, anti-person, anti-family forces that seem to be... (laughs) I came away from it, you know, obviously I'm a Christian. I believe in these dark forces, but I came away from it even more convinced of that, I think. I want to double back here for a minute because I've discussed gender ideology on this podcast before, but I've never gotten into a discussion with anybody about the extent to which money plays a role. And this is something I think that's sort of coming more into focus, right? Matt Walsh touched on the issue, like the medicalization of a human being from childhood makes an enormous amount of money for pharmaceutical companies and for the medical industry. You've got 40,000 girls right now crowdfunding their double mastectomies and sex change surgeries because of how expensive these things are. And really, when you started to get into that, to the documentary, my ears kind of perked up because I think this is something, it's really interesting because progressives are utterly disinterested in the malfeasance of corporations when it comes to either the abortion industry or the gender industry. Basically, you stop following the money the moment it has to do with, you know, the sexual revolution. So That's right. Maybe dig into this a little bit for everyone, because I think this is a largely unremarked on aspect of it. But Daisy, the detransitioner you talked to, was very emphatic that money had so much to do with this that it had made her profoundly cynical, she said. 
Yeah, that's right. Let me give some props up front here to people like Jennifer Bialik, working out of, I think, Florida now, who does a lot on this. Check out her piece. But yeah, money is a huge, I mean, one of the premier players. And if you think about the medical industry, which is just one aspect of it, the counseling industry is also making a ton of money. But the medical industry itself, you think historically, like, how did the medical industry make money? Well, you had to wait for sick people to arrive, right? People had to get sick, and then you would try to cure them. And starting at the beginning of the 20th century, and especially with the advent of synthetic hormones, especially in the form of the birth control pill, what you see is pharmaceutical companies realizing that we don't have to wait for people to get sick. We can give them pills, prescribe them daily, weekly, monthly medication for the rest of their life. And this was a fascinating concept for them, I think, and one that they greatly enjoy, right? So they're making money on healthy people now. Well, the gender industry just takes that principle and multiplies it exponentially. Here's how the regiment works, right? So first kids social transition after they've been sucked into like a GSA club or their kindergarten teacher has told them about trans or something like this. And they socially transition, they change their name, their clothes, maybe even hid from their parents. And then they will go on puberty blockers. So this is prepubescent kids being put on synthetic hormones, which are actually just basically sterilization pills. These are off-market medications that we used to give to sex offenders because they're chemical castration drugs, but we don't anymore for the most part because the side effects are too great. But this is what we're giving to kids. Anyway, they put them on puberty blockers. And after a little bit on that, they will then be put on cross-sex hormones. So testosterone, if you're a girl wanting to transition, identify as a male. Well, these things have permanent catastrophic damage. You're sterilized. That's one thing. You're never able to have proper sexual function for the rest of your life. And you become a lifetime medical patient because your body will never make the proper hormones that it needs basically to stay alive. So even to prepubescent kids, these pharmaceutical companies have now made them patients for life. But that's not the end of it. Then after they have prescribed cross-sex hormones for a little bit, which again, permanently alters, they absolutely lie to these kids about the effects. They're like, oh, just pause puberty. Oh, these you can reverse the effects of these. No, you can't. They're absolutely irreversible. So your voice changes, your sexual function changes. But after you get cross-sex hormones, then they're pushed into surgery. This is a billion dollar a year and rising industry where people are paying over $100,000. And now the insurance companies here in the States, the insurance companies are paying for these double mastectomies on 13-year-old girls. So now you've got surgeons running kids through like a factory, like running them through one after another all day long. Lifetime medical patients plus surgical patients. Well, that's money. That's money for everybody in that whole industry. And this, I think, is one of the premier reasons why the medical industry has fallen for this so hard. And then this anti-science. I mean, that's what I can't understand. I mean, you talk about how we used to, in education, for example, we used to want parents to be involved in medicine, we would try to get healthy people. It's like completely the opposite now, where we are medicalizing kids for the sake of medicalizing them and keeping the money flowing. And so, yeah, I think Daisy's absolutely right. I mean, she 
She talks about her surgeon in very negative terms. The movie starts out with her on her way. She vlogged this whole thing. She's got her phone with her the whole time and into the waiting room in the hospital. And you listen to her now talk about this. I mean, she knew the surgeon's name, but the surgeon probably didn't know her name. She never talked to her. It was just in and out. Thank you for the money. It's a disgusting, evil thing, primarily motivated by money. Oh, and by the way, Planned Parenthood now, we all know them as the abortion providers, the baby killers, but now they're making a ton of money off providing testosterone to kids and these puberty blockers. And also, by the way, Planned Parenthood is providing the counselors so you get like a 20-year-old girl that's been trained by Planned Parenthood. These are now your counselors in a lot of high schools. You know, 12 junior high kids can run down to the Planned Parenthood this afternoon and walk out with testosterone in less than an hour. They're just printing money off this stuff. So that listeners really understand, when we're talking about the long-term medicalization of these young girls, I want to be crystal clear about what we mean, because the facts are so horrifying that I think a lot of people sort of mentally avoid them and speak in sort of vagaries about transgenderism, gender ideology, gender reassignment surgery, or now, as they call it, gender affirmation surgery. And so we talked about Daisy, and she's one of many heartbreaking examples of a young, a young girl who got a double mastectomy because she was told that that would make her whole, which is a sick and perverse irony as it is. What else does this medicalization involve? Yeah, well, I talked about the sterilization, the inability. So you see that Daisy was euphoric, you know, sort of after the surgery. But within the three weeks, she was already regretting it. And this is, this is what people need to realize. There is a lot of pain and suffering that they're not willing to admit a lot of times. And they put on a brave face. There is sometimes like a euphoric period with this, but then they regret it. These are not simple surgeries. Double mastectomy is not a simple surgery. If you go for what's euphemistically called bottom surgery, these are horrific. I talked to Billy Burley, another transitioner in the film. Honestly, I couldn't put his footage like the way he talked about it, we'd have had an NC-17 rating. It was so grotesque what they did to that poor guy's body. So you have just like the mutilation factor of it, but it also changes everything from like your ability to have kids. So thank you. That was what I was starting to say. Daisy knew that she wanted to have kids even through this whole thing. Like she was just like, I want to be a parent. Always have. It never really changed. And she realized after a few years of being on testosterone, that she was going to have to have surgery to make her stale forever. And after about four years, four to five years, that's basically it so that you can never have kids again. And thankfully, she was like right near the end, right near that border. She realized, well, if I continue on this path, I'm going to have to pay a surrogate or I'm going to have to adopt. And she looked at the numbers on that and we're getting like 100,000, 150,000. She's like, but yet I could still possibly have a kid. Like my body actually has kids. It's fascinating to hear her talk about this. And she's like, well, oh, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? So that's one of the, actually one of the motivations for her to get off of the testosterone and the other drugs she was taking. She's like, well, why am I sterilizing myself? The physical effects, psychologically, physically, emotionally, go far beyond that and last forever. And so people need to realize that these kids are being lied to when they're saying like, oh, it's just a minor thing. It's like a pause. These drugs are not, they're off mark. None of these drugs have been, by the way, have been FDA approved for these purposes. They're all used off label. Explain to me how they get away with saying that you can pause puberty because it's always seemed to me to strain credulity 
even on the basis of common sense, I'm not a medical expert, but when they say, no, we're just giving them these drugs to like pause puberty, like for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The stuff just doesn't seem to pass the sniff test, even if you don't have a medical textbook on hand. How are they getting away with that? Well, honestly, I think one of the ways they do that is to just constantly come with slogans. It's a very cult-like thing. Like if you actually start to think about it, I mean, not only it doesn't pass the sniff test, I mean, it's completely irrational and anti-evidence, like all of it, right? Like none of it stands up to any sort of scrutiny at all, which is why they don't actually allow it. If you start to dig into how the movement works, you're not allowed once you're in the movement to ask questions. If you start to ask questions, you get shunned, you get pushed out, and people who continue to ask questions often detransition or they stay away from it. You'll hear slogans like, hey, trans men are men. Trans women are women, right? You know, the whole love is love thing. Like, it's very cult-like in that way. So there's an anonymous detransitioner that we talked to in the film. We did that because she's she's very young. She's 15 and her parents didn't want any harassment. But how she got out of it is that she literally started asking questions of her GSA club. They say, well, it's biological. You're just realizing how the body that you are supposed to have, you know, it's wrong or whatever. And she's like, well, if it's biological, how is it that 12 of my friends all decided we were gay at the same time? And then three weeks later, we all decided we were trans at the same time. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And that was kind of it for her. But they would not allow that. Right? <laughs> like, no, you, you don't ask these questions. So I think the cult like speak the mantra. Just keep talking. Don't don't ask questions. Just keep yelling. Which, as you know, is like a, that's a common tactic of many groups, particularly, I would say, on the left now, I mean, is how they get away with this. You're right. I mean, it's complete nonsense when you start thinking about it. So let's kind of take a look at how this is unfolding, because it's kind of exploded pretty fast. And you note in your documentary, and I've written this before, too, that you see sort of see that the catalyst of the, you know, the sort of the transgender alien bursting out of the American chest would have been, you know, the Caitlyn Jenner thing where Bruce Jenner, the male Olympian, who apparently won all that stuff as a woman, you know, <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> the consistency is very helpful, I find. So when you have him declaring that he is a her and then winning woman of the year, at, I think it was Glamour magazine, right? Yeah. And, you know, through all sorts of miraculous tucking and, and things like that, they tried to make Bruce, this big strapping Olympian dude, come across as a woman. But it really mainstreamed it because, like, I do not have not and will never watch the Kardashians, but it turns out there's a lot of people who very much do enjoy them. And so there was this pulp culture catalyst that made apparently the idea that a man could become a woman seem more credible, fuse that with social media, and this sort of thing went haywire. We are now at least in this sort of moment where enough people are speaking out that you've got Republican states actually willing to ban these procedures, Florida being the most recent and obvious example. You've got detransitioners coming forward and telling their stories. Yet there's a long way to go. I would argue that the effectiveness of the institution capture for the transgender movement means that a couple of victories don't necessarily indicate long-term victory. What would your take be based on all the interviews that you've done? Like in some ways, nature is going to bite back. And so you have all these really profoundly miserable, mutilated people who been destroyed by this ideology speaking up and of course their lived experiences to use a progressive phrase is the most powerful weapon their faces their stories how do you see this proceeding it's a good question i'm always you know hesitant to predict the future too much it is nice that there is more awareness particularly of the kids that were like you said we're starting to ban some of these procedures on kids 
I would say it was gurgling in 2013 online. And then you have like the Obergefell and you have those kind of things happening. And then Caitlyn Jenner in 2015, where it really hits off. But social media, it was huge right at that time. Well, that wave of girls that transitioned at that time, you're going to see a big wave. You're starting to now, but those girls are now 22, 23, 24 years old. And they have gone through that and they're starting to look back and say, what just happened? You know, like there is a backlash. So you have detransition forums on Reddit that are 40,000 strong, right? So there is that group. I'm with you, though. My concern is the institutional takeover has been so strong, so incredible. And the amount of lies that we have to accept each day just to get through public life, you know, whether it's being forced to show your pronouns or what, you know, this sort of thing that I don't know. And I also am not sure, Jonathan, that we actually have a strong enough pushback against this. And this is why I got into the philosophy of it. I'd, like I see the so-called conservative movement here in America with some pushback, but I don't think it's strong enough in that we're not pushing back based on a proper understanding of what it means to be human. We're pushing back based on, well, I don't like the idea of kids not having a say. Well, fair enough. I'll stand side by side with you to fight the medicalization of children. But at the same time, I don't know that we have the strong ontological, philosophical, theological foundation to really adequately fight this thing. And that, so that concerns me. So that's an interesting point, because after we lost so definitively on the same-sex marriage question, there was a lot of people who kind of pointed out that the real reason that we believe marriage is, by definition, a monogamous, lifelong relationship between one man and one woman, the real reasons were never actually articulated, that people went for pragmatic arguments, they went for common ground arguments, and as such, traditional marriage was never really adequately defended in the public square. Do you think that this is a mistake that's also being made with gender ideology, that people are focusing, say, on minors, you know, getting chemically castrated and minors being mutilated, but that, in fact, the big argument about whether or not, for example, a sex change is actually possible, whether gender affirmation surgery is a real thing, that, that an opportunity to engage in ontological terms is being missed here? What would your take be on that? I do think that. I do agree with that. And so let me give you like an example. So here in Southern California, we recently had a 10,000 pediatricians show up at the Anaheim Convention Center. Many of us, it wasn't organized by me, but I showed up along with many others, showed up to peacefully rally and educate outside the convention center against the medicalization of children. And there was all sorts of people there, religious, non-religious, right? Conservative, liberal, Democrats, Republicans. I stood side by side with a group called Gays Against Groomers, right? So we have like all these gay groups that are coming out, very strong gay presence there, right? And so I stand side by side with them against the medicalization of children. Absolutely not a problem. However, later on in the evening, we actually premiered Disconnected that evening and we showed the film. And one of the first questions after the film was from someone with same sex traction, apparently. And she was concerned that I did not make the argument in the film that 
One of the reasons for the rise in trans is homophobia, that we are transing away the gay, right? They're transing away the gay in these kids. This is Andrew Sullivan's main argument as well. Yeah. So my response was, well, no, I actually did address this, although maybe not directly in the film, <laughs> because I do talk about the philosophy of this thing. It is an, a particular understanding of the human person that is necessary to even think that trans is a thing. And it's a dualistic sort of Gnostic dualism where you have the real you, right? Like the whatever you is, that's an ethereal thing. It's your ideas, it's your will, it's your emotions, but it's not your body, right? Your body has nothing to do with it. Your body is disconnected from the self. It's part of the title. And I disagree with that. That's not an accurate assessment of, the, of reality, according to me. But here's what I also said. Homosexuality, like that idea, is the same thing, okay? It actually is the same philosophy. Like, for you to identify yourself as gay means that your identity is disconnected from your body. It is connected to your desires, to your proclivities, to your behaviors, that is the same. That is the trans philosophy. And it's also the gay philosophy. Like your identity is based not in your body. In fact, it's explicitly separated from your body and its natural bodily functions. And so I said that that is the identity. And so on that, I simply cannot agree with you. Like we can stand side by side and fight the medicalization of, of children. However, in one sense, your philosophy opened the door for this. Like by saying my identity is based in my will and not my body, you opened the door for this. And before you, frankly, the second wave feminists opened the door for you by disconnecting their identity from their body. We're not talking about that. In fact, even the most conservative journalists I talk to will not put that in their story because their story will not get printed. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's just a fact. And it's because here's the end of that story. Just a few days ago, actually, Jonathan, the Gays Against Groomers, again, they, nice, like they're friends of mine. Okay. This group that started Gays Against Groomers, a very lovely lady named Jamie, who I have talked to and enjoy spending time with. Okay. But she was on Twitter the other day because a group had started called Maps Against Groomers, and they used the same sort of logo and the same font. And if you're not familiar, I mean, you are, I'm sure, but if the audience isn't familiar, what that is, is minor attracted persons. So basically pedophiles. We used to call pedophiles. Yeah. yeah, right. So pedophiles. This group of pedophiles had started Pedophiles Against Grooming. Okay. And she was up in arms. She's like, no, 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 no. You, you cannot. And thankfully, she got them kicked off Twitter, frankly. But here's the thing. She doesn't actually have a philosophy to stand against maps against groomers. Okay. That's the problem. If you accept gays against groomers, it's philosophically very difficult. It's arbitrary to put that line anywhere. If your identity is in your sexual proclivities and your desires, well, that person desires kids. I mean, it's as disgusting as it is, but that's simply a fact. So I do think that at some point, <laughs> we are going to have to face that question because conservatism or whatever is not on its own is not strong enough to stand against these things. It's an arbitrary, that line. So you see these kids, I mean, the pedophile thing is a huge thing because what's happening in our culture with these consent laws that are allowing kids now behind their parents' backs, you can go in California now. California is now a sanctuary state 
for kids who want to go behind their parents' backs and go get these cross-sex hormones, okay? The consent laws allow kids to go behind their parents' back as a 13-year-old and come to California and get hormones to permanently alter their bodies. What else can they consent to? We're looking back up the slippery slope here and say, you know, yeah, it's a bummer we lost Obergefell and, and all these things. Like, well, the slope is not finished yet. We're still sliding. Well, I know, and I think it's very important for people to recognize that if the sexual revolutionaries had gotten their way, that this would have been part of it to begin with. The right, the Kinsey ideology That's right. highlighted the fact that children were sexual from birth until death, which they basically proved, listeners should be aware of my air quotes here, by tormenting children sexually and recording their responses as actual sexual responses. Michel Foucault, the father of wokeness, as it turns out, was a rapist pedophile. A lot of significant philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir signed petitions calling for the removal or the reduction of the age of consent and if it wasn't for social conservatives like Mary Whitehouse in the UK, you actually had groups like the Pedophile Information Exchange being openly interviewed on the BBC and offering legal help to pedophiles who are caught abusing children. All of this premised on the idea that children could experience sexual pleasure. And if you'll notice the trend of this rhetoric is we're getting very close to this idea that people have the right to sexual pleasure. And that puts us a whisker away from saying children have the right to it as well. You'll notice as well that something that dovetails directly into what you're saying is that we're hearing a lot about this doctrine of mature minors. When we're talking about the doctrine of mature minors, nobody's ever suggesting they should be able to consume alcohol earlier or smoke earlier or drive a car earlier. When we talk about the doctrine of mature minors, we're actually saying they should be able to override parental consent for things like a double mastectomy. We're saying that in even really heinous examples, they should be able to opt for euthanasia or assisted suicide, an even more permanent decision without parental advice. And so this doctrine of mature minors, which is creeping in only for insidious reasons, is really underscoring what you've just said there. That's exactly right. You couldn't be more right on this, Jonathan. That's the history of it. People need to realize the history. I know you've got some great material on this, and it's very dark. I mean, the, the, you know, the fact that Kinsey has an institute still in Indiana, the university, is so mind-boggling to me. Although if you ask the Kinsey Institute at the University of Indiana for the child sex data, they won't produce it, even though the supposed reason for their existence is to provide his data to other researchers. Yeah. That's the thing. Like People need to realize like this movement has a long history. There's been, you know, pauses and bumps along the road toward the overt sexualization of children. But I don't know, you have to be have your eyes completely blind almost to not see like what's going on with all these drag queen story hours. Like what's the motive there? You know, like what 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 is actually happening with this trans thing? Why are we talking to kindergartners? about their sexual identities. This is really, really dark when you get into it. And this is why I say if we don't understand that, we can't effectively fight it, right? Like, we can't pick an arbitrary standard. If you say like, okay, after 18, you know, people can do whatever they want and they want to change their sex. Well, on one hand, I get it. All right. Yeah. Like I said, I stand side by side with people who, who are just wanting to stop it for kids. Yes. Let's stop it for kids. However, ontologically, there's no difference. Like Daisy, the girl in my film, she was 20 from 18 to 20 when she had all of the major surgeries done. So she was legally 
an adult. That doesn't change. I mean, she's still made a huge, huge error. There is no such thing as sex change. No, nobody, as Walt Heyer says often, like nobody in the history of the world has ever changed from male to female, okay? It does not happen. This is impossible. There's no such thing as a transgender child. See, but I would add, I would add to that. There's no such thing as a transgender child. There's no such thing as a gay child either. If we're not willing to put those two together, I think, and realize that what the argument really is there, that we're not going to effectively win this battle. I want to refer to something you just said there, because a lot of people do tend to say, oh, okay, right now you're going too far. You're saying that, you know, they actually want to legalize pedophilia, etc. You're insane, right? You know, they say that we're kind of either the boy who cried wolf or that we're just being a bit too dramatic. And I want to point out that this is just because you're the boiled frog. Because if I had told you back in 2000 and let's say, 12, let's just say 10 years ago, right? That like the BBC and the New York Times and the LA Times would be printing the phrase her penis with a straight face or posting pictures of like bearded tattooed dudes and talking about how she had been arrested for raping someone with her girl penis, which I am not making that up. That happens like monthly. This happens all the time. You would have been like, come on, man, right? You're making this up. If you had accused Biden of signing on to this stuff 20 years ago, I think he would have been genuinely outraged because he just didn't realize which direction the river was carrying him. And so I think whenever you're tempted to hear warnings and think, ah, they're going a bit too far, think about where we've come. Think about what you would have believed 10 years ago or come on, five years ago for some of this stuff, right? Would we have thought that one of the key issues even five, six years ago would be that, you know, drag queens were now like a fundamental feature of children's entertainment. And that the left went from saying they're not doing it to, yes, it's happening, but it's not sexually explicit to grow up, you prudes. It's great in like five minutes. And so it's just really important for people who are listening to the things that you're saying should recognize that if anything, you're probably being quite tame in your predictions. Unfortunately, you're right. I mean, the five minute thing, I mean, this is historically speaking, this is all happening instantaneously. Like Obama, Obama ran against gay marriage for Pete's sake. I mean, this is President Obama, you know, and you go from that to that to the guy that was just in the White House. I can't even think of his name who's masquerading around, you know, all in the paint. And it's like day 50 of being a girl. I mean, it's just a clown show. In the White House, right? I mean, if you could if you could just plant anybody in the history of America, literally anyone in the history of America up until yesterday and show them a video from last week of this guy in the White House as some sort of epitome of what it means to be American, they'd all think we've gone crazy because we have. Yes, we have. Yeah. And yet people are like, oh, you know, I think it's OK. Like, no, you're right. We're the boiled frog. We are in the midst of an absolute, the stupidest time in the history of the world, and one of the most evil times. And yet people are just going along, just floating along. Yeah, we get compared to the late Roman Empire all the time. But I would point out to people that we've done the fourth century in five years, right? It's going really quickly. And you think Caligula was ridiculous for making a horse a senator, right? Like, I wouldn't laugh all that much. And I'd pick the horse over half of the ones that we have, incidentally. That's right. I, I agree. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, sometimes you have to ridicule these things because they are ridiculous. At the same time, like your documentary is really, really chilling. It's very powerful. And it, it's not without moments that I think are beautiful, especially the resilience of, of Daisy, the detransitioner, I think is quite a hopeful thing to see. 
I spoke to another detransitioner recently and she's again just like this pretty teenage girl and just the thought of what they did to her just makes you just kind of choke up with rage because it just didn't have to happen right they're being ruined for no good reason and so I guess one of my final questions here would be your documentary what kind of call to action is it I am very well informed for your documentary and I think that people who want a good summary of where we are on this issue while also getting the human aspect of it should watch it but what kind of call to action are you putting forward with this film i appreciate your kind words about the film i do think what i have seen from people who have watched it either being in the theater with them or hearing from them is very much what you said like people are moved by watching the film i've heard this several times now that you come away from the movie saying i cannot sit quietly by anymore i must at least do something and which is great right and people are usually crying by the end which is what we want okay so you're moved what are you supposed to do i would say whatever we can do to not be silent like this is the thing if you stand out whether it's out on the street or email or talking to somebody after they've seen it in the theater people most people support when you say listen should we really be cutting the breasts off a 13 year old right should we be giving them chemical castration drugs they agree with you but they're unwilling to go against this cultural juggernaut in really any visible way. So I'm not going to post it on Facebook. You know, I might quietly share with a friend who I think agrees, but I'm not going to, you know, make any public stand. This is the problem, right? Like, no, there is a bunch of people out there. I think still most people, hopefully most people still agree with this. We have to be vocal about it, whether that is posting something on social media, telling your friends, sharing the movie, sharing your books, Jonathan. But we have to make some sort of stand because the quiet sitting on the sidelines is what got us here. Plus, educate yourself. It's so almost inevitably the case that people are like, well, I agree with you, but I can't say anything. And it's unfortunate that why can't they say anything? Well, I don't want to be thought of this way. Their job might be at stake, frankly. That's the reality of it. Like, yes, your job might be at stake. But if we're not willing to take a stand that's going to cost us, whether that friend we have is no longer going to talk to us or whatever. I mean, I get it. I mean, the last two years, three years, right, has been absolutely insane <laughs> with just like the way that friendships break up now. Okay. But we have to be able to do that, I think. Erin Brewer, who's in the film, has been through a lot herself, and she's a co-founder of Advocates Protecting Children. She, I think, is very strong on this. She's like, listen, if it does cost you friendships or your job, that's the price we have to pay. And I'm, you know, obviously, I'm hesitant to tell people that. But at the same time, people are getting seriously, seriously, permanently damaged here. We're going to look back on this someday and say, how could everybody have been silent? When we look at all the thousands of girls walking around maimed, what were we possibly thinking? You know, you think back to like the lobotomy craze and you look back and say, well, that was crazy. But multiply it exponentially. Yeah, that was crazy, but we weren't doing it on the scale that we're doing it now. Like, if we were, we, And we weren't doing it based on fundamentally false premises. This is worse of a screw up. You know, it's crazy. So I, that's what I would ask. I just figure out a way to just take some sort of vocal stand on this and educate yourself. So like, please do watch the film because even people who think like, I've heard this too, like, I kind of thought I knew what was going on, but wow, that really sort of opened my eyes a little bit. There's a lot more going on than you might think. Final question. Where can people get the film? 
Yeah. So a good place to start maybe is just go to donjohnsonmedia.com. That will get you links. It's streaming online worldwide at my movie site, Runaway Planet Pictures, if you go to runawayplanet.com. But if you want a link just to sort of everything, if you want to go to like buy the DVD or stream it, donjohnsonmedia.com is the one-stop shop for all that. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Hey, good to talk to you, Jonathan. I appreciate all that you do. And yeah, keep up the good fight, man. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Don Johnson, the filmmaker behind Disconnected, the real story behind the transgender explosion. If you'd like to check out past shows on a variety of these sorts of topics, please head to lifesitenews.com. Click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe to our show or check out past shows. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.